Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Blue, and I'll be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Sun Life Financial Q4 2020 Financial Results Conference Call. All lines have been placed on me to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. The host of the call is Lee Chalmers, Senior Vice President, Head of Investor Relations and Capital Management. Please go ahead, Ms. Chalmers. Thank you, Blue, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sun Life Financial's earnings conference call for the fourth quarter of 2020. Our earnings release and the slides for today's call are available on the Investor Relations section of our website at sunlife.com. We will begin today's presentation with an overview of our fourth quarter results by Dean Connor, President and Chief Executive Officer of Sun Life Financial. Following Dean's remarks, Kevin Strain, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer will present the financial results for the quarter. After the prepared remarks, we will move to the question and answer portion of the call. Other members of management will also be available to answer your question on today's call. Turning to slide two, I draw your attention to the cautionary language regarding the use of forward-looking statements and non-IFRS financial measures which form part of today's remarks. As noted in the slides, forward-looking statements may be rendered inaccurate by subsequent events. And with that, I will turn things over to Dean. Thanks, Lee, and good morning, everyone. 2020 presented a new challenge to the world in the form of COVID-19 and shone a bright light on existing challenges, particularly systemic racism and climate change. At Sun Life, these served as a catalyst to accelerate change. We had already made digital a key focus. The pandemic meant we needed to accelerate our digital program even faster to serve clients virtually when face-to-face -face became impossible. The horrific murder of George Floyd galvanized action to drive lasting change and eliminate systemic racism. At Sun Life, we started a series of dialogues and training around racism. We set a goal to have 25% of executive roles staffed by underrepresented ethnicities in North America by 2025, including goals for black, indigenous, and people of color, and to achieve gender parity in these executive roles. Climate change is one of the defining issues of our time. In our annual MDNA, we have included our first climate change disclosures under the Financial Stability Board's Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD. At the end of March, we will publish our 2020 sustainability report that will provide more detail on our objectives and ways where our expertise can have the most positive social and environmental impact. Turning to slide four, reported net income of 744 million grew 3% over the prior year, while underlying net income grew by 9% to 862 million. Underlying earnings per share grew 10% over the same period, and we generated a strong underlying return on equity of 15.4% for the quarter. Our capital and cash positions remain healthy, and along with a low leverage ratio, 
provide flexibility and opportunity for further capital deployment. MFS ended the year with U.S. $610 billion in assets under management, driven by asset appreciation and positive net flows, demonstrating the continued strength of MFS's performance and brand. SLC, our alternatives asset management business, grew third-party AUM to $106 billion with strong invest, investment performance and positive net flows. And we reached $33 billion in AUM at Sun Life Global Investments in Canada with strong investment performance for clients and positive net flows. Insurance sales of $1.4 billion in the quarter were up 2% over last year with 11% growth in Asia and 4% growth in the U.S. on a constant currency basis. In Vietnam, we entered into a 15-year bank assurance partnership with Asia Commercial Joint Stock Bank, or ACB, which started last month. This partnership complements the exclusive bank of partnership with TP Bank in Vietnam that started a year ago January and in its first year nearly doubled our Vietnam sales compared to 2019. Throughout the year, we also expanded our agency distribution network across Asia, where we now have 138,000 advisors in the region, up 12% over 2019. Turning to slide five, as you know, we are on the journey of accelerating everything digital, driven by our purpose of helping clients achieve lifetime financial security and living healthier lives. We've made big strides using digital data and analytics to change and improve the client experience. And here are just a few examples. In Canada, our digital coach, Ella, helped clients save an additional $700 million in wealth deposits in 2020, up 69% from 2019. Ella also helped clients to close the coverage gap, contributing to $1 billion of face value in insurance sales, up 83% over 2019. We made client interactions more frictionless, digitally processing 90% of Canadian retail insurance applications and 79% of retail wealth transactions. Our artificial intelligence and predictive modeling accelerated and improved the individual insurance application process with 71% of policies underwritten without the need for lab tests, an increase of 26% over prior year. In the U.S., we've just launched a fully integrated disability and absence management technology platform that simplifies the experience for clients. As legislation continues to evolve, absence management is becoming increasingly complicated for employers, particularly those who operate in multiple states. To date, we have onboarded nearly 10,000 employer clients to our new state-of-the-art claim system that will enable us to coordinate absences as a single event across all benefits. In the fourth quarter, we launched a digital non-face-to-face sales platform in Malaysia, and we now have virtual sales experiences in each of our markets across Asia. And finally, this year, we introduced digital enterprise across the company, bringing together the business and IT to help us deliver exceptional digital experiences and client outcomes. Digital enterprise is a new way of working for us. It's how we will ensure our clients can have a distinctive digital experience integrated across life, health, and wealth. Turning to slide six, I'll touch on some highlights from our full year 2020 results. Despite the challenges of the pandemic, we benefited from our chosen business mix and strong execution. And this also came through in the returns we delivered to shareholders. 
with five-year total shareholder return of 9.6% compounded annually top quartile among 20 global competitors. Reported net income for the year of $2.4 billion was down 8% from 2019, mostly as a result of equity market volatility and fair value of real estate investments. Underlying net income of $3.2 billion grew 5% over 2019, reflecting strong business growth and a 13% increase in expected profit, strong investing activity due to market dislocations early in the pandemic, and favorable morbidity, which includes the impact of lower benefits usage brought about by the pandemic. On the other hand, we also saw elevated mortality experience in the year, mostly related to clients who sadly succumbed to COVID-19. Credit experience in the year was also unfavorable, driven mostly by downgrades in the second quarter. Full-year insurance sales decreased by 1%, primarily reflecting lower large-case sales and lower market activity in Canada's group benefits business, while insurance sales were up for the year in both the U.S. and Asia, including our international high-net-worth business, which doubled its sales from the prior year. Wealth and asset management sales grew 39% to $221 billion, with strength across all our businesses. We also reached a milestone of $1.25 trillion of AUM. MFS finished the year with four quarters of net inflows, totaling U.S. $13.1 billion for the year, and continued to d- deliver strong investment performance for clients, with 97%, 95%, and 94% of U.S. retail assets ranked in the top half of their Morningstar categories based on five, 10, and three-year performance, respectively. SLC Management, our Alternatives Asset Manager, reached an inflection point with underlying net income of $94 million, reflecting strong contributions from recently acquired businesses, including Benthol Green Oak and Infrared Capital. We also completed our acquisition of a majority stake in Crescent Capital Group on January 5th of this year, broadening the solutions we bring to institutional clients and bringing SLC's third-party AUM to $145 billion on a pro forma basis. On slide 7, you'll see how we were there for our clients in a tough year. We delivered nearly $200 million of claims payments to the families of clients who succumbed to COVID-19. We extended grace periods for our clients to make premium payments, provided credits to employers for the lower benefits usage we saw during the pandemic. We enrolled over a half a million Canadians in a new virtual healthcare service through Lumino Health and Dialogue. Our client index score measures how our clients rate us on proactive contact, ease of doing business, and problem resolution. Our score increased again this year, increased by three percentage points over last year with increases across all categories, indicating that our obsession with the client experience is showing up in results for clients. When I stand back from this, I'm incredibly proud of all that we accomplished in 2020. It was a hard year for people, for communities, for countries around the world, yet it was a year that showcased the tremendous determination of Sun Life employees and advisors coming together to stand behind our purpose. Now, we're not out of the woods yet on the pandemic, And yet there's every reason for optimism as vaccines are rolled out around the world. Sun Life is well positioned for 2021 and beyond with the strength of our people and culture, diversified and balanced business models, strong capital, and our ambition 
to be one of the best in the world at what we do. 2021 will also be a year of leadership change for Sun Life. In December, we announced that Kevin Strain will succeed me as the president and CEO when I retire in August. I know that Sun Life will remain in great hands under Kevin's leadership. He's a strong leader with great knowledge and passion for our business, and I'll have more to say about that on the Q2 call in August. And now over to you, Kevin, to take us through the fourth quarter results. Thank you, Dean, and I appreciate the kind words. I'm excited and humbled to become the next president and CEO of Sun Life. The client is at the center of everything we do in every one of our markets with a focus on helping clients achieve lifetime financial security and live healthier lives. And as Dean outlined, our focus on the client has never been more evident and more important than this past year. We've heard countless stories from how Sun Life has been there for our clients during the moments they needed us the most. This is what inspires me and motivates me and Sun Lifers all around the world. I'm looking forward to leading Sun Life and more importantly, continuing to work with our executive team, board of directors, employees, advisors, and partners to build on Sun Life's success well into the future. With that, let's turn to our Q4 results. Slide nine provides an overview of the results, which continue to demonstrate strong execution amid the challenging environment caused by COVID-19. Our reported net income for the quarter was $744 million, a 3% increase over the same period last year, driven by strong underlying net income, partially offset by assumption changes in management actions. Reported net income also included higher fair value adjustments on MFS share-based awards, reflecting strong performance in the year. Market-related impacts in the quarter were positive $20 million after tax, mostly driven by equity market growth, which was partially offset by the impact of narrowing credit spreads and changes in the fair value of investment properties. Underlying net income was up 9% at $862 million, driven by business growth across all four pillars, favorable morbidity experience in Canada group benefits and in U.S. stop-loss businesses, partially offset by lower investing activity in Canada as a result of asset repositioning and an AFS impairment in Asia. Credit experience in the quarter was, was a positive $18 million, a good result. Underlying EPS for the quarter was $1.47, up 10% compared to the same period a year ago, while underlying ROE increased by 40 basis points to 15.4% above our medium-term objectives of 12 to 14%. Assets under management increased to $1.25 trillion, an increase of 13% year-over-year, driven by positive market movements, strong net inflows throughout the year, and $16 billion of acquired AUM on the closing of infrared in SLC management. Book value per share is up 6% compared to Q4 2019 and slightly lower than Q3 as a result of foreign currency translation in other comprehensive income on a stronger Canadian dollar in the quarter. Our LICAP capital remains strong with ratios of 147% at SLF and 127% at SLA. The SLF ratio increased by 3% quarter over quarter, largely due to the $750 million subordinated debt offering completed on October the 1st. SLA's ratio was in line with Q3 at 127% and reflects the capital put into SLA from SLF to fund the ACB bank assurance agreement in Vietnam. The debt offering increased our financial leverage ratio to 23.5%, below our target ratio of 25%. We ended the quarter with cash at the holding company of $3.1 billion. After the close of Crescent acquisition in January and our upcoming debt redemption of $350 million later this month, Pro forma cash at the holding company is $2.4 billion, and our pro forma leverage ratio will be 
Slide 10 shows business group performance on both a reported and underlying net income basis. Canada's reported net income was 7% lower versus Q4 2019, driven by a similar reduction in underlying net income, which reflected investing activity losses due to asset repositioning in the quarter and unfavorable expense and mortality experience. This was partially offset by improved morbidity experience in group benefits on lower long-term disability incidents and the impact of repricing, as well as expected profit growth across all businesses. In the U.S., we saw a year-over-year decline of 33% in reported net income, reflecting the ACMA impact of the new reinsurance agreement in our enforced management business. On an underlying basis, net income increased 8% as our stop-loss business continued to see favorable morbidity experience. We also benefited from higher net investment returns on surplus assets and business growth, which was partially offset by less favorable credit experience and unfavorable expense experience. Mortality experience in the U.S. was unfavorable in the fourth quarter, primarily from higher deaths in our group benefits business related to COVID-19. Our asset management businesses saw an increase in both reported and underlying net income compared to the prior year, up 17% and 19% respectively. Asset management earnings benefited from higher average net assets in MFS, as well as an increase of $19 million in SLC, um, SLC management, underlying net income, to $34 million on strong contributions from BGO and infrared. Asia's reported net income was broadly in line with Q4 2019, while underlying net income was down 19%, mostly as a result of $20 million AFS impairment relating to an investment managed by our joint venture in India. This was partially offset by higher new business gains in international hubs and favorable expense experience. In our corporate segment, which includes the UK business, both reported net income and underlying net income increased year over year. The, the improvement under both bases was driven by higher earnings in our UK and other runoff businesses and lower project uh, spend in corporate support compared to 2019. Slide 11 provides an overview of our sources of earnings. Expected profit grew 16%, driven by growth across all our businesses. In particular, we saw strong growth in Canada and in asset management, which grew by 16% and 22% respectively. U.S. expected profit grew 7%, driven by growth in the business throughout the year. Asia expected profit grew at a more modest 5%, as growth in the business of 9% was partially offset by higher planned regional office expenses. New business gains improved by $14 million over the prior year, mostly driven by higher sales in Hong Kong. Experienced losses of $136 million pre-tax in the quarter included market-related impacts from narrowing credit spreads and the impact of the fair value of investment properties, partially offset by higher equity markets. Expense experience was unfavorable in the fourth quarter, reflecting investments in digital and in GB operations in Canada, sales commissions and incentive compensations in the U.S., and initiative spend in corporate. Unfavorable policyholder behavior included small amounts in various products across the company. The fourth quarter experience also included unfavorable mortality, reflecting a small number of large claims in Canada, and COVID-19-related claims in the U.S. group benefits business, mostly offset by favorable mortality impacts in the U.K., which is reported in our corporate segment. Morbidity was favorable on lower incidents in Canada and the U.S., and credit experience was also favorable in the quarter. The $60 million pre-tax of ACMA in the quarter was predominantly in the U.S. Earnings on surplus were flat year over year 
as lower AFS gains were offset by fair value gains on investment properties and surplus and gains on seed investments. Slide 12 shows fourth quarter insurance and sales by business. We continue to benefit from our investment in digital capabilities as we grew total company insurance sales by 2% year over year despite a challenging backdrop. Insurance sales grew in the U.S. and in Asia up 4% and 11% respectively on a constant currency basis. U.S. sales were driven by growth in both employee benefits and stop loss, while Asia had sales growth in most, across most markets. The Philippines continues to recover from the impact of COVID-19 restrictions with a 46% growth in sales compared to Q3, though still lower than the prior year. Canned insurance sales were down 18% from the prior year due to lower group benefit sales as fewer sales have come to market. Wealth sales increased 15% compared to Q4 2019 with 19% growth in asset management from higher sales in both MFS and SLC. During the quarter, MFS had positive net flows of U.S. $1.5 billion, while SLC management had positive net flows of $900 million. Asia wealth sales also increased, up 61% year-over-year from fixed income sales in India, higher money market sales in the Philippines, and growth in the Hong Kong pension business. Canada wealth sales are down 18% from the prior year, reflecting lower defined benefit solution sales in the quarter, partially offset by higher mutual fund sales in our individual wealth business. Value new business was $293 million in Q4, an improvement over the prior quarter, but down 13% year-over-year driven by lower sales volumes in Canada Group Benefits and Group Retirement Services businesses. Mix of business in Asia and the impact of lower interest rates also impacted VNB. Turning to slide 13, our year-to-date operating expenses increased 4% on a constant currency basis over the prior year, while controllable expenses were up a modest 2%. Removing the impact of acquisitions, which added new run rate expenses, as well as higher contractual volumes from the sales compensation and commissions, full-year operating expenses were up only 2% from the prior year on a constant currency basis. We continue to focus on expense discipline across our businesses while benefiting from lower discretionary spend, such as travel and conferences-related costs due to COVID-19. This has allowed us to accelerate our investment in digital capabilities across the company. During the quarter, we recorded a restructuring charge of approximately $20 million after tax and corporate related to simplifying our organizational structure and driving efficiencies. We anticipate annual run rate savings from these initiatives to be roughly $25 million pre-tax, which we expect to reinvest in the business. We've also been deploying a strategy for our workforce and redefining the role of the, co- of the office in a post-COVID environment. Starting this quarter, we began reducing and consolidating our real estate footprint across Canada and the U.S. and expect to take a further charge of 40 to $60 million after tax in Q1 to reflect vacating and reconfiguration of existing workplaces, which we anticipate will generate gross annualized savings of roughly $20 million. Turning to slide 14, we show our 2020 full-year progress against our medium-term financial objectives, as well as a five-year review. Underlying EPS grew 6% in 2020. On a five-year basis, underlying EPS has grown at a rate of 8% per annum, meeting our growth objective of 8 to 10%. Underlying ROE was 14.4% in 2020 and averaged 13.5% over the past five years. And finally, the dividend ratio for the year has remained just inside of our target range. Our client strategy has been the center of our focus with all four pillars growing underlying net income in 2020. 
Throughout the year, we deployed capital for organic investments, including investments made in advancing our digital capabilities. We also completed the acquisition of infrared, entered into strategic partnerships, including two new bank assurance arrangements in Vietnam, and shortly after the end of 2020, we closed the Crescent Capital Acquisition at SLC Management. As a reminder, we're looking forward to hosting you virtually at our SLC Management Investor Day on March 18th. In closing, our focus on the client, investments in digital, and strong balance sheet have helped us perform well through the pandemic, and we remain confident about our financial position and our operating model. 2021 should see the world emerging from the pandemic conditions, and we are starting the year from a position of capital strength and a continuation of our growth agenda. With that, I'll turn the call back to Lee for the Q&A portion of the call. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, to help ensure that all our participants have an opportunity to ask questions on today's call, I would ask each of you to please limit yourselves to one or two questions and then requeue with any additional questions. With that, I will now ask Blue to please poll the participants for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question, please press the star, then the number one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Your first question comes from the line of Humphrey Lee from Dowling & Partners. Your line is now open. Good morning, and thank you for taking my questions. Um, my first question is from Mike uh, regarding MFS. Um, the margin of 41% was clearly very strong, and I think last quarter you talked about uh, the margin kind of expectation to be in the mid to 30, uh, mid to high 30% range in normal markets. Uh, but based on where we are today and assuming a cooperative market, is there any reason why we shouldn't expect margin to stay at kind of current level or maybe even a little stronger as your uh, net asset growth? Good morning, Humphrey. It's Mike uh, Roberge. Um, you know, as we've uh, indicated um, historically, you know, we think through the cycle in normal conditions, you know, the margin should be in the mid to high 30s. You know, the last year really off the market bottom with, you know, the S&P up over 75 percent, um, pretty good growth in the third quarter of markets that you're going to be at the higher end of that when the markets are, are um, sort of maybe a little bit more extended relative to what we see normally. That's true on the other side of it. If we get a you get a correction of 20%, you may see it down below that um, guidance that we've provided as well. So we continue to be comfortable that through the cycle, we're going to be in that 30 to 35%. If the margins stay strong, we're going to be at the higher end of that. On weaker margins, we'll be at the lower end of that. And, and beyond that, uh, I wouldn't give any more guidance. Okay, thank you. Um, and then uh, in in U.S. group benefits, um, can you talk about the the various impacts that you've seen across the product lines uh, from from the from COVID-19? Seems like you are one of the outliers in in the marketplace in terms of still seeing strong margins kind of uh, through uh, through the year at eight percent. I know there are a lot of still a lot of uncertainty, but can you just talk about some of the uh, the, the moving pieces in 2020 and how you think about that going into 2021? Sure. Good morning, Humphrey. This is Dan Fishbein. Uh, yeah, let me talk first about uh, mortality and morbidity impacts. Uh, we've certainly seen mortality, especially in our group life business. There also has been mortality in our closed block individual life business. Uh, but that business uh, has a different impact on the bottom line because it's uh, of the older ages in that group it's already very well reserved, plus we have reinsurance and a significant portion of that is a par block. 
But in our group life business, we have seen mortality both in the fourth quarter and through throughout the year. Uh, from a morbidity perspective, we have not seen significant impacts in the LTD business. We have seen some impacts on short-term disability. There certainly is more uh, frequency of short-term disability claims uh, caused uh, by COVID. Uh, as, as you noted, of course, stop loss is an important part of our business mix, and very strong results in stop loss <coughs> have helped to mitigate some of the uh, negative impacts, such as mortality. Uh, in, the other aspect of this is sales. Uh, sales have remained strong for us. They were up year over year uh, and, and strong in all of our businesses. And that is somewhat uh, unique in the U.S. group industry uh, over the past year. And we attribute that to our very strong digital capabilities and our experience working virtually. And that has distinguished us somewhat in the market. So we've been able to grow market share during this period of time. Got it. Thank you. Your next question comes from John Aiken from Barclays. The line is now open. Good morning. The uh, success that you've had growing um, SLC management is, is obviously quite apparent with the, uh, the growth and earnings contribution. But again, on a quarterly basis, it's been a little bit volatile. was wondering if you could give us a little bit of uh, color in terms of how the acquisitions um, have been performing against expectations, specifically infrared and uh, uh, butyl green oak, please. Uh, hi, John. It's Steve Peacher, um, and I can, I can answer that. Um, yeah, we, you know, uh, just to comment on this quarter, obviously 34 million of underlying net income is a strong quarter for us. That was bolstered a bit by some uh, strong fundraising at Bentall Green Oak in the fourth quarter, which led to something called catch-up fees, which are common in private equity-style real estate funds when you have final closings, and and that that helped us in the in the in the quarter. You're going to see those from time to time in certain quarters, and these are going to be episodic and a bit lumpy, but you're going to you'll potentially see catch-up fees as some of our underlying businesses close on, have final closings on a fund, or you'll see performance fees as those come due. So that'll add a, you know, every now and then we're going to get the benefit of that. It won't be every quarter. If I look at the different businesses, obviously infrared closed this past, in the summer of, of 2020. Uh, the Green Oak deal closed a year before that, the summer of uh, 2019. We, we feel like everything is on plan. You know, all of our businesses are growing. Uh, in terms of sale, uh, new commitments, we raised $3.5 billion across the platform in the fourth quarter of new commitments. And if you look at where we're winning business, it's across fixed income, private credit, real estate, infrastructure. Um, and, of course, Crescent didn't close until January, but they're off to a bang in, the, uh, in, the, in January with the, first clo with the close on their latest direct lending fund as well as pricing a new CLO. So, um, you know, it's always a competitive market, but we feel like each business is, uh, you know, is, is performing well. Uh, thanks for that, Steve. I'll recue. Your next question comes from the line of David Motimaden from Evercore. Your line is now open. Hi, thanks. Good morning. Um, I, I guess just a, a, a question uh, for Kevin. Um, and, and Dean, congrats uh, on the retirement, I guess, a, a bit early. But for, for Kevin, um, I guess, do you, see, do you foresee any, any big changes to the, to the strategy 
um, and also specifically around capital allocation uh, once you take the reins uh, during the summer? You know, I, I've, I've worked with Dean closely on the strategy since he, since he became the CEO. Actually, I was one of the, the team members below the executive team at that point in time that had worked on the strategy with him. And now as the CFO for three and a half years, I feel like I've had a, a big input on the, on the strategy. I do see us really emphasizing digital. Um, we, we rolled out a project called Digital Enterprise, which was really about how working more agile, working more like a digital company, bringing IT and the business closer together, but also on the what side of, of doing more on digital and, and continuing to be aggressive. Uh, the, you can see just the impacts on digital through COVID and how quickly we pivoted. So we'll continue to emphasize that. Um, sustainability, I think, is a big topic for every company now, including diversity and inclusion. And Dean started his comments at the, the start of the um, the call on, on, on sustainability and, and ESG, and I think that's going to be an important topic. Obviously, my time in Asia um, had a big influence on me, and, and Asia's been a big priority for us in terms of capital deployment, and I see that uh, continuing to happen. So, you know, it's uh, I've had the great honor to work really closely with Dean on the strategy. I feel like I've had a input on the strategy and, and that, you know, we're going to build on that success and the, and the strategy we put in place. Great, and, and then just a quick follow-up on that. Uh, do you see yourself in, in Asia? Do you see you guys entering into new new regions, new countries there, or do you foresee it just being more of a kind of bulking up where you currently have a footprint? You know, we, we've, I think we've got a great footprint. I, you know, the, we, we're in the, the two biggest economies and the two biggest markets with uh, China and India. We've got a, a great business in Hong Kong. We've got a really good footprint in the ASEAN region. We're building out high net worth. So, you know, my focus would be the same as it's been the last few years is building scale. So you saw us do uh, two transactions on the bank assurance side in Vietnam. And I was quite involved in those, as was Dean and Leo, of course, and, and Larry Madge, who's the CEO there. But th those types of transactions where we're building distribution capability, we're building partnerships, and we're, we're building in a, in a market that we think has huge potential, I think those are good examples of the types of things that will be our focus. Okay, that makes sense. And, and then just an, another question, uh, Kevin, just on free cash flow uh, generation and sort of an update there. I think in the past you've said in the $800 million range per year, um, earnings have, have clearly uh, grown, I think, since you, since you last uh, gave that update. So how are you thinking about cash flow the, these days um, in terms of uh, cash flow above the dividend that you guys are generating. Um, and I guess also just wondering how to think about that uh, going forward. Is that something you you see just growing in line with the IFRS earnings um, as we as we sort of go forward? Yeah, we're, we're, we're roughly in that range. And it's been, as you know, the capital drives off of reported income, which has been uh, stressed by the economic conditions. So it's, it's, uh, I would say that roughly in that same range, we're also investing in, in new businesses and those types of things. So I, I would have that number in mind. As we get closer to IFRS 17, we'll spend some more time on how to think about the business post IFRS 17. Okay, great. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line was called Chan from Canaccord Genuity. Your line is now open. Uh, good morning, 
Kevin, you just recently talked about building out the high net worth in Asia, and, and maybe just talk about uh, international hubs, which kind of supported insurance sales in the quarter. Um, not talked about too much in the past, but just uh, maybe broadly, just on the progression of that new segment, and, and perhaps an outlook uh, that you see on insurance and wall side uh, over the next few years. Scott and Sadine, I think we'll ask Leo Greffin to take that question. Good morning, Scott. Uh, it's Leo here. Uh, I can uh, yeah, go through a little bit of where we're at uh, with international hubs. Um, and as you said, uh, it was another strong quarter for that uh, business segment. Um, the, you know, the results are the outcome of our strategy uh, with that business over the, the last few years. Uh, we've obviously been in the international uh, offshore business for a long time. Uh, but over the last uh, three years, we made an explicit decision to make high net worth in Asia a strategic focus for us. And, um, uh, you know, one of the early parts of that strategy was to bring the international uh, business into Asia. Uh, subsequently, we uh, ended up bringing together the international business with our Hong Kong business under the International Hubs banner. And what that's allowed us to do is um, uh, to really start to operate these two um, uh, businesses much more closely, um, bringing together our broker relationships across the region. And so you can imagine a much better alignment of relationships, uh, much better orchestration, uh, much better service for these brokers. It's also allowed us to leverage our capabilities in terms of product development, uh, we've made significant investments in digital and technology capabilities as well, which uh, have also improved um, our operations and ease of doing business uh, for, uh, for uh, brokers. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, just generally positioned us more strongly with, with more significant scale, for example, for, um, from a balance sheet and reinsurance standpoint. And so what, what you're seeing in terms of results is really the byproduct of that focus uh, in a business that requires a lot of expertise and uh, where there's barriers to entry. So we're benefiting from that uh, right now. Um, now, you know, in terms of uh, what's happening with, uh, with COVID-19, uh, there is some uncertainty because um, uh, this is a business um, uh, that has a long lead time. It takes, you know, six to 12 months uh, to go through an onboarding process with a client. Uh, up until now, we have strongly benefited from uh, the pipeline that we started to build um, uh, a year ago, uh, and so we've seen that momentum. Um, uh, Q4 sales continue to be strong, but uh, I would say there's, there's been a, you know, some softening of, uh, of the pipeline uh, given travel uh, restrictions. And just a quick follow-up, you talked about uh, expansion into uh, the Singapore market. Um, is there any other um, expansion opportunities into other regions? And, and maybe you can comment on, on Singapore, Singapore specifically. Uh, yeah, you know, with uh, our presence in Bermuda, um, now our Singapore presence and our Hong Kong presence, uh, we believe we've really covered the big uh, international financial centers of Asia. So I think in terms of footprint, we feel like we have uh, all of the geographies that we need. Uh, specifically in terms of Singapore, uh, we, we uh, acquired our license uh, last year, in the middle of last year, and um, we've been, uh, you know, preparing the, the launch of the office uh, since then. It's been going well. 
Uh, we're establishing a network of distributors in Singapore, and, and that's uh, uh, proceeding apace. And then we're also preparing for regulatory approval of our first uh, product in Singapore. And so all that's on schedule, and uh, you know, we expect to start uh, this business um, uh, as soon as we get uh, the required regulatory approvals on our product. Great. Thank you very much. Your next question comes from the line of Tom McKinnon from BMO Capital. Your line is now open. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, good morning. Um, the two questions. The first is with respect to uh, um, uh, investment experience gains. You mentioned there was some asset repositioning in the quarter. So uh, I guess that's meant uh, um, you may have sourced assets, but you didn't have any kind of significant yield enhancement uh, activities. Um, uh, as a result of this asset repositioning, does that uh, what does that imply for uh, uh, the outlook for uh, um, investment experience gains going forward? Yeah, Tom, it's it's Kevin. Uh, most of that was in Canada and was sort of a, a reloading of the balance sheet. You would have seen that uh, we took advantage of the strong balance sheet early in the COVID and 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 ran some pretty strong gains. And in the fourth quarter, we as as spreads came in, we saw a chance to to sort of reload the balance sheet and and sort of prepare us for uh, it, it. It puts us in a good position for next year. Okay, so is there a um, any kind of uh, metric for a run rate that we could look at? Because this has sort of bounced all over the place in this quarter. Um, you know, is $25 million a quarter or something? I mean, I'm trying to give us uh, – do you have any indication as to how we should be looking at that going forward? Yeah, we've given a run rate for investing activity in the past of in, in the neighborhood of 10 to $20 million after tax, and for AF gains, AFS gains, $30 million. I would say that that's still roughly in line with where we'd expect to be, $30 million after tax for AFS. Okay. And the $30 million after tax AFS gains are not in that uh, – um, uh, No, that's not in the investing activity. I'm just kind of answering both because they, they kind of relate to each other and sort of the, the balance sheet strength. Okay. That's great. And uh, the second question has to do with the uh, international hubs. And I know you made a decision um, – earlier in 2020 to move your Hong Kong business in there. And it sounds like uh, um, even though, uh, you know, uh, Hong Kong used to be part of Asia, but now it's part of your international hubs business. But I think that was an effort to build out more high net worth business in Hong Kong. Correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, um, then when I think of high net worth business, I think of like, pretty big face amount policies. And when I think about pretty big face amount policies, I think of paramedical testing. And when I think of paramedical testing, I think uh, that's pretty tough to do in a COVID-19 environment, especially in Hong Kong where it's locked down. So how can you, is, 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 are the sales you're getting in this international hubs in Hong Kong, are they largely related to a pipeline? And uh, um, maybe you can talk about what's happening with respect to you know, these big high net worth policies in Hong Kong, which would probably uh, need some paramedical testing, and uh, how that's looking in light of COVID-19. Uh, Tom, it's Dean. Leo is going to take that one. And Leo, I'd suggest as you do, also comment on the, the local Hong Kong business, because it's a significant business and in part of those results and an important contributor to our, to our growth. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, uh, Dean. Uh, Tom, uh, good morning. Um, so,
so uh, you know, as I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier on international hubs, um, uh, it is a business uh, that is complicated, that has a long lead time, right? We have kind of six to 12 months pipelines for that business. Um, and so up until now, we have benefited from business that started um, you know, pre-COVID-19 or in the early days where travel was still possible. Um, we're now reaching the, the end of that pipeline um, and uh, the brokers are, you know, talking to us and, and um, sharing with us that, that there is a softening of the pipeline. Um, however, there's a couple of uh, mitigating factors to that. Um, the first one is that, um, you know, if you look at the international hubs business overall, um, uh, it's got, uh, you know, our uh, Bermuda business, uh, our Singapore presence, uh, and, um, and, and Hong Kong itself. Um, you have high net worth. Um, uh, you have high net worth clients in Singapore and in Hong Kong uh, that are offshore clients, and so there is uh, there is potential for sales of people who are currently living in those geographies um, and who are able to you know do medical exams uh, without traveling. So we we are benefiting from uh, from from that uh, still, and I think that will continue. Um, the brokers that we're talking to uh, are proving very resourceful in um, tapping into their existing client base for upsell and cross-sell and reactivating uh, dormant uh, pipelines of clients uh, that are uh, you know, geographically um, uh, able to uh, go through the process. So uh, they, they are working on, on the, the, the pipeline, but we think new client pipelines are going to be more difficult um, in 2021 if travel restrictions continue. Um, it's it's Kevin. I just might add that just just for clarity, so the international hubs business is made up of what we used to have in Hong Kong, which is our agency business, which has performed quite quite well, and we pivoted to digital quite quickly. A broker business that does do high net worth, but it does go uh, deeper into the, the 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 market, and our MPF business in Hong Kong, and then we we brought in the Bermuda business, which the international side and, and added Singapore to leverage kind of the, the thinking around the high net worth and to leverage the relationships that we have with the brokers. So there's a, there's a bunch of com components that are inside of the international hubs. Okay. So it sounds like international hubs is really um, a, a mixed bag and the decision to uh, move Hong Kong into it was really from an operational perspective to try to get more high net worth business uh, and it may but there may not be a lot of paramedical testing with respect to the business in international hubs is am I am I correct in that you didn't address uh, I think there's just different segments uh, Tom so the the high net worth business itself uh, would have, um, you know, underwriting requirements, medical un uh, underwriting requirements. Uh, but there's other segments of the business. Uh, for example, we have a strong local broker business uh, in Hong Kong, which is more, you know, mass market or affluent, uh, which depending on the product may or may not uh, require uh, medical testing. Uh, and then we have our NPF business uh, where, you know, we're the second uh, fastest growing MPF business in Hong Kong and the third largest in terms of AUM that also contributes significantly to, to our growth. And then we have our agency business, which also is more of a, a mass affluent type of business uh, with uh, a strong savings component, retirement components, um, health components, and so on, uh, which uh, may or may not have uh, you know complicated underwriting requirements. And 
you know, for that local business, um, hospitals are open in Hong Kong. You know, today we had seven unlinked cases. Uh, people are going about uh, their business. Um, so if there's a, a medical exam required for a, a local client, uh, they, they're doing their medical underwriting. Okay, and then the last one is which, which one of those Asian segments, the local markets or uh, international hubs, uh, would have the um, greater, uh, would have the more positive impact on new business uh, on a sale? Like, are the margins the same in the two types, in those two Asian business, but you get more of a gain on sale in international hubs? It's, uh, it's, it's fairly uh, similar. Okay, yeah. and uh, high net worth is slightly bigger contribution to our uh, new business gains, but, uh, but in a similar ballpark. Okay, thanks for that. Your next question comes from the line of Manny Groman from Scotia Bank. Your line is now open. Hi, good morning. I uh, just wanted some more clarity on um, the consolidation of, of real estate in North America. You talk about a 40 to $60 million charge. I'm just wondering you know, how bold uh, you're going to be in, in this uh, uh, issue in, in terms of you know, how much square feet are we really talking about? Is this a big change? Uh, do you expect a big percentage of the workforce to kind of work from home at least part of the time? Kind of what's your thinking here in terms of in terms of the outlook for for your corporate real estate footprint and and how significant is this decision? So many is Kevin, and if you looked at our our footprint for our own use real estate across North America, including financial centers, it's just under 15% of our space. And I think it's a, it's a number of things. It, it's it's uh, our ability to work from home effectively, which we've been able to demonstrate uh, the past 10 or 11 months. Uh, I, it's also, you know, if you went back and you looked at our office usage and run rate usage, which is something we look at really closely, we did have an opportunity even before COVID to, to shrink a bit. And, you know, it's uh, uh, we took the opportunity this quarter to, to bring both of those pieces together. The financial centers are in the, the charge we took this quarter of 20, and the additional office space is, is coming through in the next quarter. But we think that's a, we think that's a reasonable place to land. Um, you know, there's still lots of work to think about in terms of the, the future of work and how people are going to work and, and those types of things, but we thought that, uh, that this sort of reduction positioned us well. And I think you talked about the expense savings for the fees you took uh, this past quarter, but for for the charge that you're signaling in 21, what kind of expense savings are, are there? It, it, it's roughly 20 million, and it may seem smaller on a per dollar basis, and it's partially to do with um, uh, future future lease costs and those types of things, and and also reinvesting into the space to to create a different sort of workspace for the for for the offices. Okay, and and then just uh, as a follow up, sort of. What are the implications, in your view, for the investment side of your business? Obviously, you, you hold a lot of uh, real estate investments. This kind of decision that you're making at the corporate level, how does that inform where you think real estate valuations are going? Does it have any implications? Penny, it's uh, Dean Connor. I'm going to ask Steve Peacher uh, to, to take that one on. Uh, thanks, Dean. Hi. Yeah, thanks, Penny. Yeah, you know, certainly... Um, you know, every business is thinking about how they'll be working post-COVID. We're certainly seeing announcements from some companies vacating space, and that obviously raises questions about office. I would say 
would emphasize that you have to keep in mind that the about the institutional real estate markets are are huge, they're global, and they include many different property types. So it's difficult to have just one outlook for real estate broadly. Um, for instance, there are many areas where in real estate they're doing extremely well. For example, uh, Bintal Green Oaks European funds have generated great returns for investors even during the pandemic because they've been so focused on industrial properties, which continue to show fantastic returns, and they're now moving into areas like cold storage, which are seeing incredibly strong demand. Um, it's certainly reasonable to be concerned about the near-term outlook for office, but even there, it's heavily dependent upon property and, and location. And, for instance, in the, the office market in Tokyo is very strong, and our team there continues to generate high double-digit returns by focusing on that asset class. At the same time, there are office properties that are facing vacancy issues and have, have fallen in value. Um, so I think, I think it's by property type, by location. Um, I will say, to, you know, final comment, that institutional investors are still very interested in the asset class. Um, we had a, for example, we had a first closing on our Bental Green Oak Core Plus Fund in June of last year, squarely in the middle of the pandemic, and we had higher than uh, target fundraisings in our European and Asian funds just in the fourth quarter. Um, and, and, and one other anecdote, you know, I, I know there have been a lot of articles recently about companies vacating space. You're also seeing the opposite in some instances. I mean, I'm in Boston, just an announcement last week that Amazon's signed a lease for 630,000 square feet in the seaport district. Um, so, um, you know, it's a, it's a big sector with a lot of different uh, puts and takes. Thanks, Matt, Steve. Your next question comes from the line of Gabriel Duchesne from National Bank Financial. Your line is now open. Uh, just a quick one on the, the reinsurance transaction. I'm sorry if this got asked before, but you mentioned that one of the ACMA charges this quarter was uh, on that reinsurance transaction in the uh, uh, life uh, runoff business there the, in the States. Can you tell me what you're you know, aiming to get out of that and, uh, and you know, if it's some sort of reaction to you know, uh, indirect impacts from COVID that you're anticipating? So, Gabe, it's Kevin. We'll turn that to Kevin Morrissey. Yeah, thanks, Gabriel. It's, uh, this is Kevin Morrissey. Uh, in the quarter, the reinsurance transaction uh, that you noted, uh, there was a cost of $53 million that came through in the ACMA. The purpose of that was really twofold. One was to ensure some of the large-case mortality exposures you would have heard over the past year or so, some of the volatility that we've had in the U.S. related to ISM from large claims. So we've taken the opportunity to reinsure some of the large exposures. So we do expect a reduction in, in uh, volatility. Um, we also got a, a capital benefit from this. So that's also noted in our disclosures. There was a one-point improvement in terms of the diversification benefit broadly. So that was another benefit. I should note as well that on an economic basis, so when we look at our best estimate assumptions, this was positive. So the strain is really coming from the PFAS, which we expect to come back into income over time. Okay. Uh, and on the capital management front, understanding that there's some restrictions on distributions, uh, if those restrictions were lifted tomorrow, you know, would you be looking at uh, raising the dividend? It, it looks like you're going to be, you know, at the low end, if not below the low end of your payout ratio this year, if uh, we don't see any uh, big noise in the in the world. Uh, you know, 
how do you uh, view that? Gabriel, it's Dean. Uh, when OSFI lifts the moratorium on dividend increases, uh, whenever that happens, we do expect uh, to resume a pace of regular dividend increases. And our intent will be to, to land the dividend payout ratio in that 40 to 50 percent range. As, as you noted, I think for the year we were we were uh, at the lower end of that range. I think in the quarter we slipped a little bit below it. Um, and and those MTOs do apply over the medium term. So, you know, you can expect uh, to see us get back to that range over some period of time, and that period of time is to be determined. Right. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Paul Holden from CIBC. Your line is now open. Thanks. Good morning. Um, two questions. First is related to U.S. Group, but maybe just an update on um, pricing conditions, both within um, stop loss and uh, employee uh, benefit plans uh, with the January renewals. Thanks, Paul. Um, you know, we did see some intensification of price competition, especially in the fourth quarter. Uh, as was noted earlier, some of our competitors really did not have, uh, you know, great sales results during the year, and it seemed that some of them were trying to make up for that toward the end of the year. Uh, we had had good sales results throughout the year, so we were able to stick to our guns and price within our pricing targets overall on both new business and renewals. But in both stop loss and group, we did see some increase in price competition in the fourth quarter. Thank you for that. Uh, second question is related to um, runoff business. I guess it applies to both U.S. And, and, and U.K. And I know, Dean, you've been very consistent in answering questions on, on, on this in the past in terms of uh, unlocking future uh, profits and um, and cash flows by optimizing those businesses, but we're seeing an increased activity in transactions and increased appetite through new players. And wondering if that's swaying the economics at all that might put a transaction in a more favorable uh, light than, uh, than it has been historically. Uh, thanks, Paul. It's Dean here. You're right in, in that our focus, uh, job one has been to really run those runoff businesses well uh, to optimize them for, for tax and capital and use of reinsurance and expenses and and so on, investments. Um, so, uh, and you're right to note that in some places uh, there's been an uptick in activity to acquire closed blocks, including um, private equity uh, getting um, increasingly involved in that space. But I would say to you for over a number of years there's been there's been a lot of transactions going on, uh, both in the UK market and in the US market around closed block business. You know, back in 2013, we sold our our uh, annuity business, as you recall, and there was uh, was a robust process at that time. So, I, you know, I think I think there is good demand out there. It's it's good to to have that optionality um, if and when we take advantage of it. Um, but for now, we're we're going to continue to to try to optimize those businesses. Your next question comes to the line of Doug Young from Dean Capital. 
Good morning. I'll try to keep this quick. Just LAPS, expen LAPS experience was negative 18 million this quarter. If I go back, I mean, it's been negative quite consistently for many quarters. I know you did an ACMA charge um, uh, on LAPS, and, and we're still seeing the negative experience. So hoping just to get, if you can flush out a little bit more of what you're seeing on the LAPS side, and whether you think is this just a temporary item around COVID, or, or is there something more behind this? So, Doug, it's, it's Kevin Stringer. We'll, we'll let Kevin Morrissey address that one. Kevin Morrissey might be on mute. If, if Kevin's dropped, I'll, I'll, take a, I'll take a crack at it and see if he comes back on, Doug. But, <laughs> no, but the, the, I've got it. Yeah. Sorry, oh, I've, okay. got, I've got it now. Yeah, my phone froze up. Thanks for the question, okay. Doug. Uh, yeah, we did have 18 million of lapses in the quarter, so that was a bit disappointing. Looking across the business, we had single-digit losses across about eight lines. So it wasn't concentrated in any one business. As well, it wasn't just lapsed. So looking into it, deep dive a bit, investigating the sources, we had about half of it was from lapses. Half of it was from other policyholder behavior like resets on options take up rates on some annuitization guarantees, reinstatements, conversions, and the like. So after investigating the sources of our Q4 experience, I would say I'm not concerned at this point, uh, despite the fact that the result in, in aggregate was disappointing. So I guess to answer your question directly, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that this is, is uh, one of those quarters where everything seems to just go against us and we'll have to, we'll have to look in the future to, to see uh, how that will uh, how that will. Uh, turn around. Hopefully, uh, we'll see something different uh, for the next quarter. Okay, and then just second on Asia, the 20 million impairments to the JV in India. Can you just I, I maybe talk a little bit more about what that related to? Leo, you want to take that? Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, uh, thanks, uh, Doug. Uh, so the, the impairment, uh, you know, is related to uh, an investment we made in a fund with our joint venture partner in India uh, to support the development of the business. And, uh, you know, given what's happening right now with market conditions and COVID-19, the funds underperformed, and we've needed to take uh, this $20 million write-down based on current valuations. So do you still own that? Like, is that could be that be written back up again? Like, are we going to see that level of volatility? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, we, just to be clear, we do still own that investment. Okay, so and, it's like a you know, you have, loss. Yeah, you have to look at you have to look at the uh, uh, the, the the real estate market in, in India, which is, India is a fast growing economy, right? They're expecting you know close to ten percent GDP growth next year. Yeah. Okay, great, thank you. Your next question comes from Nigel D'Souza from Veritas Investment Research. Your line is now open. Thank you, good morning. Uh, I had a quick question for you on earnings on surplus. Uh, I noticed this quarter you had a nice rebound in investment income. I was wondering if you could speak to the drivers there. I know you mentioned leveraging SLC. And on a go-forward basis, do you expect earnings on surplus to stabilize at the current levels, or do you see a pathway we're generating higher earnings on surplus? Yeah, so the, the earnings on surplus, as you know, were 114, so a, a bit above our, our run rate, and I would say that this was a fairly strong quarter for earning, earnings on surplus. In fact, the, um, 
the lower AFS gain that we are the, the, the hit to the Indian real estate assets, which resulted in lower AFS gains, we just talked about came through the, the surplus line. It was offset by some higher um, seed capital returns. You may remember from the uh, first quarter, we had some seed capital losses, and, and uh, we continue to see some of that come back, and we had some higher LP distributions. Overall, I would say that at $114 million, that's probably on the higher side of what we would, would expect surplus to be, and it's been coming down with, with yields coming down over the, the past few years. Um, so, you know, if I was thinking about a number there, I'd think closer to 100. Okay, that's very helpful. Appreciate the caller. Your next question comes to the line of Darko. May Halleck, your line is now open. Hi, thank you. Good morning. I think my question's for Kevin and Kevin. Um, and I'm going to use annual numbers to sort of explain what I'm looking at here, which is expected profit growth in Canada and Asia. So when I look at 2018 in Canada, 5% expected profit growth, that accelerated to 10% in 2019 and now 14% in 2020. When I look at Asia, the opposite trend it was at 17% in 2018 fell to 6% in 2019, and now below 4% in 2020. So the question is, are these trends expected to continue in terms of growth of EPIF? What caused it? But more to the point, what I'm looking for really is a sort of general view on expected profit growth for each of these business lines in 2021 and, and, and beyond. Thanks. Darko, it's uh, Dean. Th thanks for that question. I think why don't we start, we'll just break it into Asia and Canada. We'll start with Leo to comment on the trajectory in Asia and, the, and, and how we're thinking about that, and then Jacques can, can comment on Canada. Yeah, good morning, Darko. If you look at the, the trend in Asia, you're, you're right, uh, Q4 uh, expected uh, profit uh, was um, at about 5% uh, versus prior year. Um, you know, what's happened in this quarter is that we had business growth, which was um, offset by higher planned expenses in our regional office to support the growth of the business. Now, the, the planned regional offices, uh, office expenses were actually reduced or deferred this year, um, given um, uh, the general market environment and our expense discipline, um, which resulted in a favorable expense experience. So there's, there's an accounting geography here uh, component. Um, and Kevin alluded to that earlier. If you account for the savings we experienced in our planned expenses in the regional office, expected profit would have been up 9% year over year. Now, um, if you look at our business in Asia, we have a number of markets that are not yet at scale. So in terms of our growth, um, we've got to look at expected profit, but we also look at new business gain. And if you combine uh, expected profit and new business gain together, uh, the growth rate of these two uh, components would have been in the mid-teens. And if you uh, account for the geography of the savings in the regional office uh, expenses, you'd actually be uh, a few percentage points higher than that. Um, so from a fundamentals of the business, if you look um, um, expected profit plus new business gains, um, we, we are seeing this double-digit uh, growth in the business. Darko, this is Jacques. Uh, in, in Canada, 
I would say it's not one thing. It's it's many things in a way. It's it's a big focus on on expense and discipline. It's uh, looking for a better mix. It's pricing properly. It's continuing to invest in digital. To give you an idea, I think you know we've talked about before our digital coach Ella. You know, Ella is getting smarter and smarter. So in 2020, uh, we gave clients something like 15 million nudges. That led to $700 million of deposits uh, and a billion dollars of additional coverage and interest. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a number of things. One of the things I would say and point out is, you know, I put it to about half, half of it is business growth, half of it is expense discipline. I mean, of course, as you can imagine, the expense discipline at some point in time, you know, it will stabilize. And, but when you, when you look back at it, I would say, you know, it sort of speaks to the underlying uh, strength of all of our businesses. We are the leader in, in GB and GRS, as you know. We're leaders in individual insurance. And we're just running the business very well. And, and uh, you know, the, the, it speaks to the earning power of the, of the division. And it's certainly in line with the MTO. And just a quick uh, follow-up on that, if I may, with respect to the business growth and you know, you mentioned the digital, and it, is it safe to say that this is still early days, or um, you know, what, was was the business growth somewhat at a, at a high pace, and you expect it to moderate now that um, you, you know these nudges are sort of like, will the nudges sort of slow down, and should I expect business growth to slow a little bit going forward? Um, you know, now that it's a little more mature. Well, it's it's tough to say, Darko, because in a way, in a number of our businesses, where things are still early. You know, Kevin in his remarks talked about the acceleration of digital investment. So I would say Canada had been on that path for a number of years, but we are continuing to really put a lot more focus on digital. We're playing a, a greater role in health. For example, you saw the investment we made in virtual care um, halfway through last year. I would point you out also to some of our growth engines are coming to a nice level of maturity. So one example I give you is SLGI. As you know, it's a business that we started 10 years or so ago, and it's contributing nicely in terms of momentum now because we crossed the path of profitability. So, so you know, there's, there's lots of runway ahead of us when it comes to uh, our growth engines. Great. Thank you. We have no further questions at this time, and I will turn things to Ms. Chalmers for closing remarks. Thank you, and I would like to thank all of our participants today. If there are any additional questions, we will be available after the call. Should you wish to listen to the broadcast, it will be available on our website later this afternoon. Thank you, and have a good day. This concludes today's call. Thank you for your participation. You may not disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.